<laughs> oh man, so uh, tonight guys we're going to be doing the daunting task. Uh, it's funny, every time my dad leaves me to speak on a Sunday night, he tells you guys the week before that I'm going to cover two chapters. Because uh, he knows that he can't cover one chapter tonight. Uh, so he always says, I'm going to cover two chapters. So I think it was, uh, it was like the end of Revelation was the last time I spoke on a Sunday night. And we covered 21 uh, and 22. And so uh, we're going over 7 and 8 tonight. Um, if you were here this morning, we covered a lot of chapter 7. Uh, but I'm going to go into a lot more detail than I had opportunity time-wise. Uh, to go into tonight, and then we're going to kind of wrap up chapter 8 as well. Uh, and if we do not finish the two chapters tonight, um, you, uh, Wednesday night? All right, there we go. There we go. Wednesday night over at Jason's. Uh, but if we don't finish tonight, and when my dad comes back and does chapter 9 next week, just nod your head like we finished chapter 8, uh, and then he'll go and he'll listen to the recording and he knows what we didn't. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 7. Uh, this morning we just briefly looked at it, we looked at the first five verses, and then we kind of did the Pastor Matt revised version, and we kind of went through all of chapter 7 and 8 in about 100 words or less, but well, we're going to read through it all tonight, uh, and we're going to go verse by verse. Uh, and then I want to open it up uh, to maybe some questions. Maybe we can do a little bit of question and answer time. Uh, so some dialogue amongst one another. And depending on where we are time-wise, how we finish, I think it would be really cool, too, if we broke into some small groups uh, and did just a little bit of prayer. Uh, we're going to be coming not this next week, but the following week. It's going to be a week where the church dedicates uh, that to prayer, to fasting. We're going to have a worship service. Uh, where it's all worship and prayer uh, two weeks from now. Uh, so I think it would be good just for us to get in the practice and the habit of praying together. I know we're all praying on our own and we have other life groups where we're praying together. Uh, but I think it's really cool when we come together uh, on a Sunday and we spend some time praying together. So I'm going to try and sequester a little bit of time uh, at the end for that. But if we're in Genesis chapter 7, uh, follow along with me as we read. Uh, and we're going to read all the way through... Uh, Bear with me, we're going to read all the way through chapter, 20, uh, chapter 8, verse 22. We're not reading all the way through chapter 22. That would be a long time. Uh, this is what it says. Then the Lord God said to Noah, Come into the ark and all your household, because I have seen that, the, that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven uh, each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of the animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, the male and the female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all the living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons and his wife and his son's wives, they went into the ark because the waters of the flood, of the clean animals, of the animals that are unclean, of the birds, of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark, Noah, male and female, and God commanded Noah, or as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass that after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. 
On the very day, or on the very same day that Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creepy thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all the flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days, and the waters increased and lifted the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed greatly, and they had increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills were under the whole, uh, and the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. All the fresh water, uh, all flesh died that moved on earth, birds and cattle and beasts of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on dry land died. So he destroyed all the living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing, bird of the air, they were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him on the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rains from the heaven were restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth, and at the end of the 150 days, all the water had decreased. Then the ark rested on the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. Uh, and in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass that at the end of the 40 days that Noah opened the windows of the ark, which he had made. And then he set out a raven, which was going to and fro until the waters had dried up on the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. And the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent out the dove from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening. And behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet again another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. And it came to pass in the six hundred and first year, uh, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. In the seventh month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wife with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his wife's sons uh, with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered them as burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled the smooth, uh, smelled a soothing aroma, and then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, 
nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, dry and night, shall not cease. Amen. Amen. Let's pray real quick, and then we're going to break down some of this. Dear God, we just thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, we thank you that your word is true. Uh, God, and that you have something for us on every single page of scripture. Uh, God, I thank you that you did not waste your time uh, when you gave us this book, that you didn't fill it with uh, fables and fairy tales uh, that we could pass over. But God, that you filled this book uh, with your very breath uh, and, and your life. And so God, we just pray that tonight you would speak to us through your word. God, that each one of us would leave here different uh, than when we came. Uh, God, and the difference would be a greater understanding of who you are, more faith in you, uh, God, and just a greater desire to go and share you everywhere we go. So God, we just pray all these things in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. 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 All right, jump with me back to verse 1 of chapter 7. Uh, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, your household, uh, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. It should be noted that Noah uh, was the only righteous amongst his generation. When we look through the Genesis 5 genealogy and we see the genealogy from Adam to Seth, so on and so forth, all the way down uh, to Noah, we see a progression, uh, and, and I should really use the word degradation rather than progression. Uh, people and, and their morals, everything is beginning to fall. Uh, Enoch was a good guy. Um, we have some good things said about uh, Lamech, but really by the time it gets to Noah, there, there, there's none good. No, not even one. And he's righteous in his generation. So God, uh, as we saw in the chapters previous, God is telling Noah, hey, there's going to be some things that I'm going to have you do, uh, and I'm going to save you and your family. And now we see the fulfillment of that uh, as God calls them into the ark, two of every kind. Uh, not just two of every kind. We're going to come back to, to, to that in just a second. He's going to close the doors of the ark, and the rains are going to come. Now, how many of you remember Sunday school, um, maybe those picture books from the Bible? Maybe you are like uh, me growing up, you had a painting of Noah's Ark in your house, and it's fancy with all the animals going two by two into this great big boat. Um, for the most part, the animals went two by two, uh, but we have this prescription uh, that he's to take seven of the clean animals, and it says seven of the birds. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, I never actually had seen this, I'd always glanced over it because, I mean, Precious Moments Bibles, they're 100% accurate, right? And the pictures are direct pictures from the time. Uh, and so I just always thought it was two by two. Uh, and it was interesting when we came to this seven of the queen. I think it was uh, last week on Sunday morning, Pastor Dave drew a little bit of attention to this, or maybe it was two weeks ago. Uh, but when he was talking about Cain and Abel, uh, and they were having their time of sacrifice with God. Uh, and the Pastor Dave asked the question, um, it's interesting that they are performing these sacrifices pre-law and that there is this pattern of sacrificial system that's pre-law. We had some Adam and then we have um, Cain and Abel doing it. Uh, and now we have the prescription for Noah to take seven of the clean animals. The clean animals uh, were used for the sacrificial system. So there, we can begin to see here, if we read between the lines, that there is a pattern of God prescribing the law before the law was given, or not just the law, but, 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 but the sacrificial system, the atonement, uh, and, and the remission of sins through that shedding of blood. Uh, and, and we see that when we read between the lines. If we were to take a look at some of the Jewish uh, rabbis, their approach to it uh, in the Targums uh, and in the Midrash and some of the Masoretic texts uh, from the late 
two centuries BC uh, to the first century AD. Uh, it talks a lot about the between the lines of the book of Genesis and, and it fills in some gaps. Those aren't divinely inspired works, uh, but they give us a Jewish perspective of what was being talked about in these Jewish scriptures. Uh, and we see that there was a prescription for uh, some of the things of the law before the, the law was given. And I want to draw attention to that just a little bit later on uh, when this morning I had mentioned some things about Noah and the nation of China uh, and really the region of the Far East. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later on because uh, I think there's some really cool parallels that can be drawn. We're not saying anything emphatically, uh, but there are maybe some interesting points that may be brought up that as we begin to look at the history of the world and we begin to look at the history of civilization, we can begin to see the dots connected. Uh, I remember doing the connect the dots when I was young, where you just one to two, two to three, and, and when you connect the dots, you get these beautiful pictures. Um, and then when I got to like sixth grade, uh, we, we upgraded from the connect the dots to those, those pictures that were like thousands of little dots and you have to stare at them kind of cross-eyed and then like close your eyes for 10 seconds, then look up at a light and you can see a picture. Do you guys remember doing those? Um, they give me headaches, so I don't do them anymore. But uh, that's the way I really feel God's word is for us. Uh, there's the really simple connect the dots and we can color the picture and we stay in the lines. Uh, but then the more we dive into God's word, the deeper we go, it begins to be one of those things where we stare at it long enough and then we look away and then we begin to see the picture that begins to unfold when we look at God's word uh, in, in a really depth and intense way. But we're not gonna do that quite yet tonight. We're gonna try, we're gonna try and get through these two chapters. So they get up on the ark. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded, verse 5. Uh, this is important. I kind of I hit on this uh, this morning. Uh, but Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Not only was he righteous, not only was he one who was upholding uh, the truths of, uh, of what God had established with Adam, um, but he's doing everything the Lord commanded uh, it would have been very easy for Noah over these years building an ark, being mocked by all those around him. Uh, some scholars would say that Noah had never even experienced rain. Uh, and now God tells him it's going to rain. He's like, okay, what's that? God, can you draw me a picture for that? Like, so he, he's in an essence blindly following God. And we're, and we're seeing this man's faith really laid out for us. The book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, that it was by faith Noah built an ark and God saved his family. And it's interesting that it never says Noah's wife was righteous. It never says that Noah's sons were righteous. It never says that Noah's sons' wives were righteous. It's that Noah was righteous and God saves his family. I think that's also very important uh, because uh, maybe some of us here, we, we have family members who are away from the Lord Maybe we have family members who were never with the Lord. Uh, I want to encourage each and every single one of us, never stop praying for our family members. Never stop praying uh, for not only immediate family, but our extended family as well. Uh, because God wants to use us. God wants to use you to continue to bring the truth of Jesus Christ to our families. Uh, God has you specifically there. Uh, we, we hear in church all the time that uh, God's got you in a specific place for a specific purpose at a specific time. You're in, you have your job and, and, and your job is your mission field. Or uh, if you go to college, college is your mission field. High school is your mission field. Uh, and those are all true statements. Those are all very true statements. Uh, but you were born into a specific family. 
And that specific family is also your mission field. So, so I want to encourage you guys uh, that, that never, never, never give up hope. I'm, I'm reminded of the, of the father who had the prodigal son. Uh, and he could have given up hope. Goes out, stands at the edge of his property each day, looking down the road. I wonder if my son's going to return. Okay, not today. Next day, it comes out. It could get pretty tiring time and time again. But it's, it's interesting that when we get to the story of the prodigal son, when he finally comes to his senses and he's like, I'm going to be a servant in my father's house. I better go back. It doesn't say that he makes it to the front porch, knocks on his door and says, hey, dad, can I be one of your servants? What does it say? It says, the father saw him while he was still yet far off and his father runs to meet him. That means the father was waiting for him. Never gave up hope. And uh, we might have prodigals. Maybe it's a brother. Maybe it's a sister, a son, a daughter. Maybe it's a father or a mother, uh, aunt, uncle, you name it in your family. Never give up hope. Because God, God is a God of salvation. Uh, and, and I believe wholeheartedly. That when we're faithful to what he's called us to do, uh, he's faithful to do the work that he starts. Amen? Amen. Amen. So then we have Noah, 600 years old, when the floodwaters are on the earth. And we're going to see something that I think is really cool uh, as, as we look at some of the numbers uh, in, in, in this chapter. Uh, this chapter and chapter 8 as well uh, are set up in a, in a specific Hebrew writing style. Uh, and and it's, it's very poetic, and, and, and we'll see the poetry. I actually have it in my notes for us, so let me just read this for us real quick. Um, the structure goes something like this. We're going to see in verse uh, 10 of chapter 7, uh, they're waiting seven days for the flood. Then in verse 17, there's 40 days of rain. Then there's 150 days of water triumphing on the earth, verse 24. Then when we get to chapter 3, or, or, or chapter 8, verse 3, we're going to see the water receding for 150 days. Then chapter 8, verse 6, there's 40 days of waiting. And then at the end, in chapter 8, verse 10, there's 7 days of waiting. So it's this, it, it, it's, it's this, um, what's the word? That, that, it's a palindrome uh, of all things. You spell noon, front ways, backwards, race car, same thing. Uh, we see this poetic style that's, that, that is put to... Uh, the book of, of Genesis chapter 7 and 8. And it, it's really cool that it just paints this picture of God's perfection uh, and that God is a God of patterns. Uh, Pastor David said it uh, time and time again. I'm sure he said it on, on a Sunday evening when you guys go verse by verse. But when we tend to look at prophecy from, from a Western view, prophecy is uh, what is God going to do in the future? Uh, but the, when, when Jews looked at prophecy, uh, they looked at prophecy of what has God's pattern been? God is a God of patterns, and he's going to lay out his plans for the future through his patterns in the past. Uh, and, and so uh, what is the pattern here uh, in, in the book of Genesis? Uh, well, that's probably a lot more discussion for another night. Uh, there's probably a book written out there uh, that really breaks down some of these things. But maybe just spark a little bit of interest. If, if you're someone who likes biblical prophecy, go do a little bit of research about the patterns of even the flood in these two chapters uh, and what it has with biblical prophecy. There's some cool things there. Um, so then we have the flood here on earth um, in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month of the 17th day of the month. Uh, that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of the heaven were open. Now, I should have thought ahead and had a whiteboard uh, because whiteboards are super fun uh, and there's lots of pickers that can be drawn 
but I myself, Pastor Dave, uh, and, and a lot of the people that we uh, we study with and, and, and study under, uh, we'd be traditional creationists. Uh, we believe in a young earth. We believe that the earth is uh, just over 6,000 years old. Uh, and so that goes against what, what schools teach these days. Um, but we believe in a young earth, and we believe in a literal interpretation of the things here in the book of Genesis. And so we're going to break down some of the literal interpretations of these things. Um, but first what I want to do uh, is look, and imagine we have the earth here. It says the waters uh, that were above and the waters that were beneath, they're breaking up. Uh, really, really brilliant people, um, some, some creation scientists, uh, they have theorized when looking at this that there was, before the flood, uh, a vapor canopy around the earth. Have we all, uh, how many of you heard this before? So, uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to dive into a lot of the science behind it, uh, but it does help explain, uh, longer life. It explains uh, large trees that we found in the fossil record. Uh, it, it helps uh, with evidence for the animals that were here and, and, and the way their cardiovascular systems would have been set up. All these sorts of things because what this vapor canopy would have done, uh, there would have been a universal temperature on earth. It would have been all uh, somewhere around like an equatorial uh, uh, sort of temperature, uh, tropic, uh, one temperature on the entire earth. Uh, and what this water canopy would do, this vapor canopy would do, is, is it would be reflecting UV rays from the sun. Those are the harmful rays from the sun that, that cause um, radiation and, and genetic mutation. Uh, and these things would have been being blocked. So it really would have been this global greenhouse effect that's taking place. Uh, and so things would have been able to grow and mature at a uh, much quicker rate uh, and things would be able to stay alive longer. Um, so when these things uh, are broken up, and, and this is really cool, there's people uh, who understand math a lot better than I do. Uh, I really do not like math. Um, but they have taken the surface area of the earth, then they have taken the surface area of our atmosphere, they have taken uh, how much water is currently on the earth today and they have theorized how much water this water vapor canopy would have been around the earth uh and, and it like we're talking two inches deep around the earth is enough to cover everything two miles deep it's a lot of water it's like a lot of water uh so some people who are uh anti creation anti-genesis flood they will ask the question uh, where's the water today if there was that much water where is the water today uh, especially if it will only cover things two miles above sea level how many of us know that mount everest is over five miles high we got three miles of mountain above water to kind of wonder how does that all work uh, well, that's where the waters from underneath come into play as well. Uh, these same guys uh, have also theorized, uh, using plate tectonics, uh, the way water comes up from underneath. Uh, one of the leading uh, plate tectonic uh, scientists, um, before he was a creationist, theorized that when Pangaea broke, or the supercontinent broke, Plate tectonics would have happened rapidly, not over a long period of time. And if there was water in the crust, it would have acted as a lubrication so that it could be fast movement of plate tectonics. And that if there was water on both ends, the pressure would be just right so that mass could move 
rapidly and, and, and some geological things that would take place while this is happening uh, also occur. Uh, so when the waters break, uh, the earth begins to break and move. And this is all theory. This isn't theology and take it as doctrine, but, but the picture is there. Uh, and, and as the continents begin to move, water's coming up from the bowels of the earth and continents begin crashing onto one another. And we can see geologically that Mount Everest, the Himalayas, uh, they are a direct result of the Indian uh, plate crashing into the Asian plate and some rapid upthrust of plate tectonics throwing a mountain up. Uh, and if the creationist model for plate tectonics, and we have really impressive computers where we can type all this in, and let the computers do it all out over a certain amount of time, and they actually show that this is how it happens, which is super cool, uh, that the mountains would raise up. Uh, and so a five-mile-high mountain today, pre-flood, wasn't a mile high, or, or, or wasn't five miles high. It probably wasn't even in the same region as the plates began to move. It's, it's interesting today, when you look at the coast of, of West Africa and you look at the east coast of South America, uh, if we remember doing puzzles, they fit together pretty good. Um, what's even more interesting about this is, is some of the cliff faces on the coast and how we have cliff faces that line up one with another. The stratification of rock lines up with another and then the, and the rock type is the exact same. Uh, now there's some questions and there's some things that maybe don't line up here. Uh, like uh, well, what about the seafloor and what about the ever growing uh, gaps in our seafloor. There is these things. Uh, and, and, and so there is question to be made, uh, but there's a lot of information when we begin to look at how seafloor uh, is actually made uh, and, and how the volcanic systems under the ocean, uh, as they erupt, they push out layers, layers, layers. And over time, we can see very quickly, just looking at the different stratification uh, underwater, uh, that these these plate tectonics can be slowly being pushed after a rapid push, if that makes sense. Uh, and, and so there is a lot of evidence even in the geological record for um, this water from beneath coming up, separating and some things. And so the Columbia question- The Columbia Gorge is a real good example. The Columbia Gorge, the Grand Canyon, uh, the Badlands of, of Eastern Washington, uh, there, there, there's very, what, what, what's amazing about living in the west coast of the United States, we have a lot of geology. Uh, and, and if you ever get a chance, uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon tonight, uh, but if you get the chance, work your way down from like North Cascade National Park down to like Olympic, and just try and hit all the national parks on the west coast, uh, you will see the most amazing sights you have ever seen. Uh, Castles in Europe are cool. I've been there. I've seen those. Uh, but nothing beats just a big cascade mountain in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and just going up there and saying, okay, God, this, this is pretty cool. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I was on a hike um, with a group of Christians, and, and, and our guide was telling us, uh, don't you think God just kind of put some of these things here? They, he knew they wouldn't be seen for like 4,000 years. But then when the first people came, God was just like waiting, like, oh, I wonder what their reaction's gonna be, you know, and now we get to see those things. So uh, I wanna encourage you, go look, because the geology's out there. And, and like Richard said, uh, the Columbia Gorge, we can see that a lot of the canyons, the big canyons that have been made uh, in, in 
the United States and all over the world uh, where a naturalistic view would be that these were formed over millions of years as rivers began to cut away at rock and as, uh, as those rivers went through flooding seasons and the non-flooding seasons, there, there's this constant rock uh, breaking. It's just, it's just like our sidewalks when we get water in them and then freeze, thaw, it begins to break, break, break. And over millions of years, we get these beautiful canyons. Um, yes, that could happen if it's been around for 4.6 billion years. Um, but it can also be shown when you have a mass, uh, a massive drainage of a lot of water, uh, these things can be cut very quickly. Um, I, I told the youth to do this a few years ago when we were going through the book of Genesis. Um, and I'm not gonna encourage us to do this because um, I told the youth that they'd have to get a waiver signed by their parents before they did it. Uh, but fill up a bathtub with a lot of sand this is why it's not good. We, we shouldn't actually do it. I, I was a little bit younger. Uh, and uh, uh, fill up a bathtub with sand, then fill it with water, then drain it. You're going to get canyons. And uh, that's a very small scale uh, evidence that when the, the, it's the perfect storm, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. When, when, when all the pieces are there, uh, it happens. And uh, it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, and so I'm going to come back to, to some of the geological things uh, in just a little bit. But we have Noah and his family here on the ark. Uh, and they're going to be on the ark. Uh, and, and we see the ark floating amongst the earth on the water. Uh, the ark most likely did not cover the entire face of the earth. There just wasn't enough time. Uh, in all reality, uh, if the ark was built in what is somewhat modern day Mesopotamia, uh, or, or modern-day Iraq, as many biblical scholars believe that it could have been. Um, remember, the world that then was was destroyed, as Peter tells us. So even landmarkers and all sorts of things, like if we're trying to place the Garden of Eden, uh, there, there, there's so many different places where people have said, oh, the Garden of Eden's here, the Garden of Eden's here, um, because the tiger's in the Euphrates, so we know it was in the Middle East. Um, well, we have Portland, Oregon, and Portland, Maine, uh, and they're both based off of a Portland, uh, in Europe, and uh, so names can be used all over the place. Other people would say those are anachronisms, which would be uh, a name that is known applied to something that is previously unknown. Uh, whatever it is, the world that then was was destroyed. So we don't actually know where Noah's Ark was built, but we know where Noah's Ark came to rest. And that's in the mountains of Ararat, which is in uh, eastern Turkey. Uh, and there has been many false sightings uh, of, of where this ark is. Uh, there's some people who said they found it and they've tried to do archaeological digs and the Turkish government doesn't let them do the digs. Uh, at this point, I personally uh, believe we have not found the ark. Uh, there, there's a lot of people who said we have, uh, but there's a lot of evidence that says ah, that's probably not petrified wood, that's just granite. Um, and so the importance of actually finding the ark, uh, for, for, for some people it's, it's super important because it proves that this is a true story. I don't think we need to find the ark to prove that this is a true story. Uh, and, and, and so I wanna go over just a few, a few of these evidences and these proofs uh, tonight for why the flood uh, is, is a true event. I'm not even gonna use the word true story uh, because story uh, has some made up capabilities to it. But this is a historical event that actually took place somewhere uh, in the historic timeline of humanity. So if we take the Bible uh, as, as our rule 
uh, and as, as if we take the Bible strictly as a historical document, um, there's a lot of things that can be said uh, about the history of the earth. Um, then when we begin to line up the Bible as our historical timeline uh, with things that we have of every culture that existed at the time that the Bible is referencing, uh, it's very interesting that we begin to see these things line up if we were to put them all, their individual timelines. We put the Bible timeline on the top, then we put the Egyptian timeline here, we put the Sumerian timeline here, Babylonian, Akkadian, uh, Sumerian. Like, we go through the list, the timelines all begin to line up. Uh, and everything from, from our earliest known written document, it lines up within about 75 years of where the Bible puts the Tower of Babel. Uh, God at the Tower of Babel uh, gives people uh, all these different languages, splits them up because they're building a temple to get, or, or, or a tower to get to God. God confuses them and the nations begin to scatter. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 11, we get the table of nations and we see how these people went that place, these people went that place. Um, and it's within 75 years of that that we get our first written document uh, that, that tells about a civilization. And then we begin to look at what historians of all these civilizations said. We can stack the timelines on top of each other and see that the biblical timeline uh, is accurate according to history. So we're, when we're talking about the flood, the flood falls in. Uh, and I don't have a slide for this, but I have a timeline uh, up here. Uh, the flood, uh, if creation is somewhere around 4,000 B.C., uh, some scholars put it at 390, uh, th 3,985 B.C., uh, and then some put it at 4,004 uh, 4, B.C., others will put it as high as 4,144 B.C., uh, and they base that date off of Josephus, who was a first century uh, Jewish scholar. Uh, all these dates... Let's just say roughly 4,000 years old. Uh, if, if we take the rough estimate, we begin to use the Genesis 5 genealogy. We put the flood somewhere about 2400 BC. Now, if the Bible is true, then we shouldn't have any record of civilization before about 24 BC or, or, or 2400 BC, other than what the Bible says happened before the flood. Uh, it just so happens, though, that if you were to open up a history book, uh, you're going to look at the history of Egypt, and you're going to see that Egypt, that has the greatest or the most widely uh, renowned timeline, uh, the Egyptian timeline goes back to 3000 BC. So then there's this big question, and all the people who say the Bible should not be taken literally say, oh, well, look at that, the Bible's off by 600 years, you got it all wrong, and Egypt just blew everything out of the water. Just so happens that in the late uh, 19th century, the 1800s, uh, when archeology span is really beginning to get its big push, it's becoming the new thing. Every young, inspiring explorer wants to become an archeologist. So they go, they learn history, they learn Hebrew, they learn Greek, they, they go. We begin decoding uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Uh, the Rosetta Stone is found. Archeology is in its heyday. The first place everyone went was Egypt. Because Egypt has the Valley of the Kings, they got the pyramids, and so everyone's doing Egyptian history. And so there was this guy uh, who came along uh, during the reign of Ptolemy. Ptolemy was uh, one of the uh, successors of Alexander the Great. He was a Greek king or a Greek pharaoh of Egypt, and he hired one of the priests of Ra, a guy by the name of Matheno, uh, to write out the history 
of the Egyptian people so that then he could send it to Greece so that it could be put in the libraries and the annals of the, the, the histories of people. So Matheno, what Matheno does is the way that they did their dating was he just says, okay, well, this king was our first king, and he reigned for this many years. And then there was this king, and he reigned for this many years. And he goes all the way through, and that's where we get about 3,000 years of history. But Matheno himself said that some of these kings reigned simultaneous in different regions. There wasn't a universalized pharaoh over Egypt. There at sometimes were four pharaohs in different regions of Egypt. Uh, but what the Greeks did was they overlooked that part and they said that it is emphatical. Egypt has been around for 3,000 years and then we get to the first century and boom, boom. So then when this is found in the 19th century, it's just known that Egypt's been around 3,000 years. So now we date every other culture from that region so whether it's Northern Africa, Greece, Italy, uh, tribes that were Germanic in Europe, uh, every uh, culture that existed in what is now modern day uh, Israel and Transjordan, uh, all our Mesopotamian uh, civilizations, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Chaldeans, uh, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, all of these, we use Egypt's timeline to base these people's timeline. The interesting thing is, Egypt's timeline is pretty clean at that 3,000 years, king, 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 king. It's very interesting to find out that all these other civilizations have patches of 50 dark years, 100 dark years, 300 dark years, where we don't know that anything happened. We don't have any record of anything happening. Well, when we begin to look at every single one of those cultures, we notice something, that if you were to add up all their dark years together, it's somewhere around 450 to 650 years of, we don't know what happened. But then if we go and we take the Egyptian timeline and we say, wait, multiple kings were serving at multiple times, and then there were other Egyptian historians who existed at the time who wrote, and when we compare those Egyptian historians with the Greek historian Herodotus, we compare them with the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, when we look at... Uh, all of these things, we say, well, wait a minute. These kings, when we begin to stack them, the Egyptian timeline shrinks by 600 years. And Egyptian history starts about the time of the Tower of Babel. And we begin to do that, we begin to look at all culture based off of this shrunken Egyptian timeline. Every other culture's dark years, they get fixed. So when we have situations of a Sumerian king reigning here, and then his son begins to reign 400 years later because we don't know what happened in between because it doesn't fit with the Egyptian timeline. We're like, oh wait, okay, this makes sense. His son reigned right after he was alive. All this to say, and that's a lot of information. Um, all that to say, the biblical timeline is perfect. And when we have this story of a global flood, um, it was not a localized flood. Uh, God's word says what it means, and it means what it says. So when Peter tells us that the earth that then was was destroyed, that means the earth that then was was destroyed. This is a very real story, a very real historical event, uh, and that's important to us as believers. Now the question would be asked, well, why is that important? I don't need to know the difference between an Egyptian and Sumerian timeline and how that lines up with the uh, Judeo-Christian timeline if I'm going to go share my faith with my next door neighbor, right? I mean, these things, 
we're like, okay, these are kind of lofty thoughts. I don't understand how this applies uh, to my modern uh, or, or to my everyday evangelism, my everyday living on my faith. And the reality is these things probably actually don't uh, help when it comes to salvation. Uh, but for me personally, uh, I believe that they're very important because God's word, if God's word claims in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, to be divinely inspired, uh, then it is divinely inspired. And that everything that is contained within scripture should be true if it comes from God. Because if not everything is true, yet it is God's word, that means God can lie. And what's to say God's not lying about even how salvation takes place? And so doing these things and, and, and some of the apologetics that goes with it, uh, God never lies. And if God can't lie, uh, God's always faithful. His word should never lie and his word should always be faithful. And it should be reliable. And so when we approach God's word, uh, we should be, begin to see the patterns of God's perfection. Now, I want us to jump uh, forward a little bit. How are we doing time-wise? Okay. Uh, about five minutes, and then we can break for prayer. Did it? Yeah, okay, perfect. Um, we're going to jump all the way down. This is how we cover two chapters in, in one night. Let's jump all the way over to chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, and we're going to look at God. <laughs> see, we kind of just covered the flood and all of that, right? Um, <laughs> Um, actually, I do want to look at chapter 8, uh, verse 18 real quick. Uh, in the preceding two verses, God says, hey, go out of the ark. Verse 18 says, so Noah and his family, they went out of the ark. Again, there's this pattern of obedience. A righteous person, a faithful person is obedient to God. Uh, I think that's a good take home. If we take home anything, obedience to God uh, is very key in our life. Because maybe we have that neighbor, maybe we have that family member who we were talking about at the beginning who, who we're not giving up on. Maybe we begin to hear God, uh, and it, it, it comes as simple as this. You get home tonight, and you're like, you know what? I feel like maybe I should give my son a phone call. Let him know I love him. Let him know God loves him. That could be God prompting you to step out of the ark. Are we going to obey or are we going to say, ah, that's probably not God. It might just be the lunch I had talking to me. And we forget about it, and then we don't have that thought pop back up again. Uh, we need to be very cognizant when God is speaking and God speaks to us uh, in a still, small voice. But sometimes it comes through as those little promptings in our spirit. Hey, I should give this person a call. I should give this person an email. I should go check on my neighbor next door, see how they're doing. Verse 20, so Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal of every, uh, and, and every, of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings uh, to the Lord on an altar. And the Lord smelled a, smooth, uh, a soothing aroma. Uh, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night, these shall not cease. Uh, Noah offers a sacrifice on the Lord. Uh, it's, it's a sign of worship. Uh, and, and, and he's honoring God. Uh, and we don't have time 
uh, I said we were going to talk about a little bit uh, and about Chinese history and Noah. Uh, if you want to know just a little bit more about that, uh, talk to me afterwards. Uh, I, I've got some cool resources uh, that you could look at. Um, but there's a pattern throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and this is not some new revelation from Pastor Matt. But there is a pattern of sacrifice, of worship, and time spent with God, the Father, at the altar. And all of that culminates with Jesus and Jesus coming uh, and Jesus being that sacrifice. And the pattern was not established when God gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai. It wasn't established when David drew up the plans for the temple and passed them on to his son Solomon and Solomon built the temple. The pattern was all the way back from when man first sinned. God said, I'm going to make a covering for mankind. And God took of his own creation a living animal, killed it, so that Adam and Eve could be covered for their sin. That pattern passed on from Adam to Adam. So all the way here down to Noah, we see it. It's going to be on almost every page of the Old Testament. It culminates with Jesus, who was the sacrifice once and for all for us. And now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, our sins are covered, and we live in the freedom and the newness that comes with Christ. Our young adult group on, on Tuesday nights, we're going through uh, the book of Romans. Uh, and Paul is writing this, this letter to the church in Rome, uh, to, to, to a group of Gentiles and Jews who are meeting there in Rome as the church in Rome. And Paul's never been to Rome. He tells them, I've wanted to go to Rome. I've wanted to be with you. Uh, and, and the unique thing about Paul's letter to the Romans uh, Paul was able to say whatever he wanted because he did not know these people. With the church in Corinth, he knew their problems, so he addressed their problems. With the church in Thessalonica, he knew their faithfulness, so he addressed their faithfulness. He'd never been to Rome, so he was able just to lay it out how it is. Pure theology. Uh, and he tells them when it comes to sin and when it comes to the forgiveness that comes through Jesus and Jesus' sacrificial work, he says, hey, your sin is here, so Jesus came and he, he was sacrificed and he gives you grace. And then he addresses the question that he knew the Roman church would ask. Wait, so if sin leads to grace, shouldn't we sin more so that we can get more grace? And Paul says, certainly not. Certainly not. And that's where we are today. Uh, there's this pattern of sacrifice. There's this pattern of, uh, a pattern of blood covering sins. Uh, here we are today, followers of Christ, believers in Jesus. Uh, yet we're faced with an opportunity to sin every day. The pattern is Jesus has paid it all, but as people who are now living in the freedom of Christ, certainly not should we continue in that sin, but we obey and we listen and we do as the Lord commands, everything according to the Lord commandment, and it's righteousness that's accounted to us as faithfulness. So I just want to encourage us tonight, uh, if we take anything away from this, uh, the Lord is speaking. And the Lord uh, is commanding us to do certain things. First John tells us that his commandments uh, are not burdensome. How do we know that we have the love of God in us? We do his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So I just want to encourage us tonight. Uh, maybe there is a product in your family. Uh, and maybe the Lord's speaking to you even now. Uh, as, as we break off into a time of prayer, uh, let's be faithful to pray for our family members. Uh, but if you feel the Lord prompting you, but don't wait till tomorrow morning. They live on the East Coast. 
maybe don't call them tonight. They're probably already asleep. Uh, but call them first thing in the morning. But if they live around here, shoot them a phone call. Shoot them a text. Maybe send them an email tonight. Uh, and just let them know that the Lord placed them on your heart that you're praying for them. Uh, and let's be faithful to see what the Lord does when we're faithful to do what he's commanded us to. Amen? All right, I'm going to pray and then let's break into groups of like, uh, maybe it's a family or, or, or a group of five, maybe that half and that half. I'll let you guys decide how we're going to do it, but let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you uh, for your word. Uh, God, we thank you for this time where we can come together uh, and study your word. Uh, God, I just pray that tonight, uh, God, that you would continually speak to us, that you would reveal uh, your plans and your purposes in our hearts. God, I pray that even now, even if it's just one person, God, that you would prompt to make that communication. Uh, God, I pray that right now, uh, that, that, that when you prompt, uh, God, I pray that we would be faithful to do what you have To love you, to love our neighbors, and to share the gospel everywhere we go. So, God, we thank you and we praise you. In this wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.